For many of us, it is the most important commitment to take care of our loved ones. We need, we feed as the Beatles song goes, and we work hard to ensure that those close to us are thriving. Today, there are 53 million people taking care of their parents, neighbors, and friends. And there are 53 million stories. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. I'm your host, Ken Stern. Imagine in your mind's eye, the typical caregiver, bringing medicine, a glass of water, propping up a pillow, offering an encouraging word. Chances are your hypothetical caregiver is a woman. Approximately 60% of the caregivers in the U.S. are women. But what about that other 40%? What about the men across the U.S. who take care of their loved ones? What unique challenges do they face? For male caregivers, we have to reframe what being a man is. Because I was raised that to be a man, you've got to be a stoic financial provider. You know, you're a little bit more hands-off as a, as a caregiver. So I think that's one thing as, as men would have to face, is that the whole notion of what a man is supposed to be when something like this happens. That's Ray Casuciano. In 2014, he got a phone call that changed his life. His father, Roger, had suffered a massive stroke. So Ray moved from Los Angeles to his parents' home in St. Louis to become their primary caregiver. Ray and his family immigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines when he was 14 years old. In the Philippines, it's not surprising to have multi-generational household in the grandparents, the parents, and the children all live in one roof, under one roof. And so it was modeled for me uh, then that there are certain responsibilities in taking care of the older generation. It may be that typically it's the f- female who might take on a more role of that. But in also in, the cult- in our culture, it's very, it can be very complicated. Um, as a, especially as a male, Asian male caregiver, immigrant, because there are certain expectations that uh, my parents would like to have because, you know, they came over here, sacrificed a lot of things, and they want me to pursue what they were not able to pursue. When Ray and his family came to the U.S., they moved into a one-bedroom apartment in a tough part of L.A. My dad was working as a security guard, you know, night shift. So they're working really hard to put food on the table. And that means they're not readily available for me and my sister. But we're lucky to avoid joining gangs, because I know gangs back then are a source of belonging, if, if you didn't know anyone. And so, so it, was, it, was, uh, it was a little tough, um, but I was lucky enough to do well so that I would be in honors classes, AP classes, um, and you know, three years later I, I got in to, you know, to UCLA. Ray did well at UCLA and went on to get his graduate degree at USC. Eventually he started his own business called Table Wisdom, connecting older adults with younger students looking to improve their English language skills. When Ray told his friends at work that he had moved to St. Louis to take care of his mother and father, they wondered why he wasn't just putting them in a nursing home. Quite frankly, you know, nursing homes are quite expensive and it's not uh, readily accessible for many Americans. And so 
um, besides, the quality of life is much better at home than in, you know, in an institution. And so, I think having a more direct role was really helpful in making sure that my, or not making sure, but increase the chances that my father would, you know, would uh, live a longer life after the stroke. Um, at the same time, helping my mom, you know, getting older and not as not as strong as she was, and and so. I do still get, you know, sometimes they'll just ask me why I just provide the money. And then I would tell them, well, yeah, it's again, it's not, it's not practical and it's a better quality of life. It's complicated. It really is. Uh, a lot of struggle that I've experienced is usually psychological. What, what does it mean to be a man? And yeah, I grew up again with you know, this Greco-Roman strong types, stoic financial provider and that they let the caring or nurturing to the female. But I will challenge them, uh, especially younger caregivers, uh, to think why they think that way. You know, go back and, you know, what are the, your childhood influences that, you know, that brought up this notion? Because I think what you will learn is that you can push the boundaries mm-hmm. of what being a man mm-hmm. should be. It should be grounded in compassion, empathy and you know putting others first less of less of quote-unquote me but more of the quote-unquote we and what I did find over this journey is that you know giving back is much more rewarding and that I'm aware that my parents made a lot of sacrifices and I'd like to do uh, what's the right thing to do which is take care of them at the moment because that's what's needed That's Ray Castuciano, who takes care of his mother and father at their home in St. Louis, Missouri. To help us understand the caregiving journey from a male perspective, we turn to two men who've given this lots of thought. Dr. James Gamboni is a professor who wrote the book, Man Enough to Care, and Mark Hyacin is CEO of the company, Men Supporting Women with Cancer. Mark incidentally started out his career as a pro baseball player in the Baltimore Orioles farm system, but we'll get to that. So let me start with uh, you, Jim. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in caregiving? What's your personal caregiving story, and how did it lead to your work in the area? Well, it's a two-part story, and I'll make it short. Uh, I helped care for my grandmother with my mother as my grandmother was suffering. With that time, it was called senility. Today, we call it dementia and Alzheimer's. But my real involved caregiving story was helping to support two very good friends of mine, both of whom had wives that were dying from ovarian cancer. And I was part of an intimate part of a support group for them. So that was my personal experiences with caregiving itself. But I was also teaching a class on aging. And one of the women in my class uh, answered a discussion question. We were talking about caregiving on a a national level. And she said, did you know that there were, that 40% of all of the informal caregivers in the country are men? And I didn't believe her. I'd never seen that before. So I challenged her. And when she provided the proof, then I said to her, and she came from a, she was the co-author of my book, Who Says Men Don't Care, A Man's Guide for Balanced and Guilt-Free Caregiving. And she and her husband ran a caregiving institute in Florida. And so I said, after this class is over, why don't we look and see what's available for men? And this was in 2010, 2011. And what we found was zero. There was zero books written specifically for male informal caregivers. And so we started on the venture of trying to write 
write a book that was written specifically for men. And that's sort of how I came into the caregiving community and into the caregiving world and obviously interviewing a lot of different men who were caregivers. And, and then the last piece is I've been doing generational and intergenerational research and work for the past 26 years, looking at the world through a generational and intergenerational lens. And one of the things we brought to, that I brought to the book was the fact that men care differently than women, but different generations of men care differently from each other. And so understanding that helps men to become better, I think, caregivers. So long, long story, but that's how I got into it. Yeah, so I want to come back to that intergenerational piece in a bit. But before we do that uh i want to ask you that little story where where your student uh uh told you the, the facts as 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 we all know them now uh and you didn't believe her what didn't you believe did you think it was less much less uh much more i thought it was much less i thought it was much less because i think the dominant thinking is that most caregivers are women and i thought that sort of surprised me because i hadn't done i hadn't that wasn't my area of expertise so i didn't do a lot of research she was much more expert about it than i was and so and then when i did the research to verify what she said i found out she was a little bit off in her statistics she thought 40% i've seen between 34 and 40% in terms of the the data that's available so mark can you sort of share with us i i'm going to ask you the same question cuz i'm a lazy host uh, the same question i asked jim what um what brought you've done a lot in your life already? What brought you to caregiving? Um, uh, um, what's what's the what's your journey? Well, my journey began like a lot of other people who became a caregiver for somebody that they love. For me, it was my mom when she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1992, and those still remain one of the five most horrific words I've ever heard: "Is your mom has breast cancer." And as a 29-year-old quote-unquote air quote grown man, I felt like a little boy. And my first thought was, oh, my God, my mommy was going to die. And I used the word mommy because I felt like a child and kind of put it in perspective. Back back in those days, we still had actually car phones. And while my whole family was with my mom when she had her biopsy, I found out that the diagnosis was positive when I was at a, a meeting. So I took my car phone and immediately just kind of chucked it out of fear and frustration went right off my dashboard and dashboard and spidered my windshield. So I thought that was kind of apropos for what I felt like that my world was just going to be a spider's web with my mom having to deal with breast cancer. And, you know, I was always taught to give back and help others. So what better thing to do than to be there for my mom? So we're talking um, today a little bit about uh, caregiving and gender. Um, what, uh, when did you start thinking about, the fact that you were a male caregiver and that was different than most caregivers and what that meant. I really didn't notice the difference between being a male caregiver and what that meant until we started going to the doctors and I would see a lot of women by themselves. Again, I grew up in a family where we were always there for each other. So for instance, when my mom went to her doctor's appointment, 95% of the time, the whole family was there, meaning I was there with my wife. My brother was there with his wife. And obviously my father was there as well, always. 100% of the time, she was never by herself. But I think that really brings to what we're talking about, what we're going to be talking about with male caregivers. People think that's unusual, but it shouldn't be. And there are more men out there doing great things that we know about because unfortunately people want to focus on the knuckleheads that don't step up to the plate. <laughs> but And I understand that, but there are a lot more men doing great things. But 
back to your question is when I saw a lot of women by themselves, it really made me sad because I don't think anybody should have to deal with something as awful and horrible as cancer by themselves. So um, both of you have been involved in caregiving for, for many years uh, as men, um, obviously enough. Uh, but what, what has changed over the years? Uh, when, did, when did the norms around caregiving start to change? Or when did you observe the idea that it's okay for you to be both a man and a caregiver? So I think norms have started to change. And I think change for the better, maybe the last five or 10 years, I've noticed a difference. Um, when I first became a caregiver and an advocate and be focusing on then the male caregiving component, a lot of it was how we were socialized with, you know, guys have to have a stiff upper lip, you know, put your big boy pants on, you know, you're bleeding a little bit. Okay. Put the bandaid on go back outside and play, make a muscle. Don't show your emotions. It's not good. Keep it inside. Well, every one of those things is not beneficial a for a guy to be a caregiver and more importantly, for the woman he's a caregiver for, because the emotions that we have, by and large, she wants to hear them from us so they can feel connected. So if they feel connected, if the patient feels connected, and if she knows the person she loves is going to be there for her every step of the way, she can then focus on her treatment. I mean, it's common sense. If I have a tough day at work and I can talk to my wife about it, I'm going to feel better about the day and, and the evening. Well, multiply it times a, a life sentence of having to deal with cancer potentially and knowing you have a caring support partner by you, you're going to help increase her quality of survivorship. And at the end of the day, that's the best we can do as a male caregiver. So Jim, what, what, uh, how do, as you see, uh, how have from your perspective, things changed over the years, uh, Mark described the difference between his father's generation, and his generation, how, how have you seen things change? Uh, well, we have now six different generations of caregivers in the country, six different generations of caregivers. And some of the things that Mark described are absolutely true. You have sort of the lone wolf, which is the older generation. My, my, my father was born in 1928, so we're about in the same, Mark and I are, are from the same generation. And, and I know how my father looked at these kinds of issues. But we also have I think what's changed is there's more of a recognition now that men play a vital role in caregiving. And oftentimes that isn't chosen, as, as we all know. And there's all different kinds of caregiving relationships that you have to look at. I mean, there's men caring for their mothers, like Mark did. There's men caring for their wives. There's men caring for their for their parents. There's men caring for their children. There's all of these different roles of caregivers. And we're finally beginning uh, that I've seen over the past, at least in my experience over the past 10 years of, of looking at this in a more, uh, both personally as well as academically, that there's more of a recognition now that men play a really critical role, especially in the informal, non-paying caregiving role. And that's what I think what we're talking about here. And also understanding, and I'm hoping to bring to this the fact that there are styles of caregiving that men have. And, and Mark's right, it's it's not anybody's dictate about what the right style is. The right style is what you need to do and where you need to be in that caregiving situation. But now I think it's important for men to assess sort of their assets and their strengths and liabilities when it comes to that. Otherwise, we all know that when you're in an intense caregiving situation, 
the most important person in that situation is you because if you're not there and if you're not healthy and if you're not balanced you're not going to be able to give the care to that person you love and likely that person will be worse off unless you do that so so i'm i'm curious mark uh you were a former professional athlete a college <laughs> athlete you know those are worlds that are um you know, forgive me for calling them macho or, you know, that have sort of elements of, you know, play through the pain. Yes. Um, how I'm that, a living example of that. Yeah. So, so actually tell us a little bit about that, your own experiences with sports and, you know, how does it make, do you think different, how do you think differently now than you might've when you were actively, you know, playing that's professional a, college that, ball? That's a great question. So those traits that made me good also hurt me. So I think, if I was able to talk to my younger self, I would say kind of balance it a little bit better because I did, I was a living example of, I paid, I played through the pain and didn't say anything to somebody. I grew up, I think in that last full generation where if a coach told you to run through a wall, you'd say, what side of the wall coach? And you want me to come back <laughs> through the other side. And that's the way my father happened to be a, a, a great athlete. He's in the Maryland softball hall of fame, fast pitch and, basketball star back in the late 40s so he was a good athlete so not only on top of that I had a dad that knew what he was talking about um, but the other part back to your question that then I think spilled over to my advocacy when I got drafted by the Orioles I was an undersized third baseman so people would always look at me and say why are you playing third base well back then I had a I was rated with the major league arm when I was 15 and I had a lot of power because of my backside and my legs, but I was always underestimated. And that kind of fueled me to, to continue to be better and work harder because I was always the first one in, last one out. That also hurt me to your question about paying, playing with the pain. If I had done things differently, I may not have had a, a shoulder surgery in my career. I had nerve damage in my right shoulder and nobody could diagnose it. By the time they did, one of them Muscles in my rotator cuff completely atrophied. Nobody could believe I was playing, but that's the way I was taught. So you mirror that with as a caregiver, a lot of guys feel that they need to keep everything inside because they don't want to bother the patient with their feelings. What guys need to understand is their feelings matter. Not only do they matter, but she wants to hear them. She wants to feel connected. So the more we can be connected with that person that we love, again, I, I hate to repeat myself, but the more we're connected, the more she can focus on her treatment. And that's going to increase the quality of survivorship. So I, I kind of wish younger Mark knew a little bit more what older Mark was going to do. And he might have played baseball a little bit longer. <laughs> All right. Well, so, so Jim, uh, you don't get to say ditto to what Mark says. I say ditto to what Mark said. <laughs> so, 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 Jim, I mean, this is actually the meat of the conversation in some ways. Um, why doesn't society credit men... Um, you yourself didn't wasn't aware of sort of the substantial role, even if it's a minority role, still a substantial minority role that men play in caregiving. Why is it that uh, society continues to um, perhaps not fully acknowledge the roles that men are playing increasingly in, in caregiving? I think it's probably for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Ken, I think that men generally uh, have been stereotyped into certain roles. I mean, we're stereotyped into being the provider, right? We're stereotyped into being strong. We're stereotyped into being uh, rational and less emotional. We have a lot of male stereotypes that are there. And, uh, and I, I think, unfortunately, 
in the, you know, if, if we look at uh, how women have challenged some of the stereotypes that they've encountered and how they've dealt with them, men have not have not done that as much as women have. And so men haven't, men sort of just push a lot of that, si- that stuff aside. I do. I push a lot of that stuff aside and say, okay, that's fine. I'm, I don't really care about that because I'm going to do what I need to do and be the person that I need to be for the person I'm caring for. So um, I think it's a societal, it's, it's a societal lack of understanding of who men are and the capabilities that men have. I think that's what's changed for me. I've seen some changes in that over the past 15 or 20 years of my life. I've seen, uh, as Mark has seen, I think there's been some change. I hope that programs like this can help raise awareness about the need for looking at men differently and what men can offer. We have a tremendous amount to offer here, and it's very undervalued, but, you know, we can surprise people. <laughs> it's really important. I mentioned in the beginning that people think about what we're doing, what Jim's doing as unique. It shouldn't be. It should be the norm because there's nothing more normal and natural than being there for people you love. My mom didn't raise her hand, say, can I have breast cancer? As a son, it was my turn to give back to her. And that's what we do. It's family being there. There's nothing more important. And again, kind of hokey, but I still think we can make a difference if you know we stayed in our area and let it build out well thank you mark uh thank you that's mark hyacin founder and ceo of men supporting women with cancer we also spoke with dr jim gamboni author of the book man enough to care if you want to learn more about mark's caregiver advocacy organization go to men supporting women with cancer.org when i'm 64 is produced by carrie thompson and ava ahmed Beggy. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Please like us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can find out more about us by visiting our website, longevity.stanford.edu. You've been listening to When I'm 64, the podcast for caregivers. I'm your host, Ken Stern.